So we, we went upstairs and into one of the bedrooms and he gets out on the floor and he pulls out this enormous work from under the bed, which was wrapped in dog blankets. And he threw the blankets off like a matador and he revealed the most spectacular peony painting I'd ever seen. A large scale work in a period frame. And I was gobsmacked. I started looking for the telltale signs that would maybe undermine what I was seeing. Was it a fake? Was it a reproduction? Is it an oleograph? Is it something that's been reproduced at greater scale? And of course, every check I made checked out perfectly. It was in fabulous condition. This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Rafilu Mpakanyane. Powered by I2ArtInsurem, Season 1 of the Latitudes Podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2ArtInsurem. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. This episode's guest is Dr. Alistair Meredith, the head of Strauss & Co's Johannesburg Art Department. As a passionate auctioneer and advocate of South African modernist art, Alistair is a treasure trove of scholarly knowledge and his love for educating the public makes him an absolute pleasure to talk to. Our conversation also deals with the state of the secondary art market in South Africa, as well as the impetus behind Strauss & Co's ongoing work to champion neglected artists and stylistic movements from the 20th century. I'd be remiss not to milk Alistair's storied experience for some cool anecdotes on finding hidden gems or to get some advice on collecting. So, I do just that. Here's my chat with Dr. Alistair Meredith. Alistair, I really appreciate you making the time for the Latitudes podcast. It really is an honor to speak to you. I guess for someone like me who is an outsider looking in, interested in the art world, but doesn't have a deep subject matter wealth of knowledge such as you do, could you just give me a working definition of modern versus contemporary art? It's obviously a matter of time periods and aesthetics, etc. But just give us a working definition that we can utilize for the purposes of this conversation. And then, of course, we'll talk about your own interests and what led you into the study of art and modern art. Okay. Firstly, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be chatting to you. I'm very grateful. Yes, I suppose a working definition of modernism Even a simplified version might take ages. I suppose in the South African context, we use the term mainly to talk about work produced in the 20th century in South Africa. We have a fabulously rich history of art making in this country. But if you take the production maybe from the mid-19th century to today, we would talk about the moderns as being those artists working broadly across the 20th century. 
Yeah. What was it that led you then, Alistair, to study art? You did your bachelor's in art history and English lit at the University of Edinburgh. And then you went on to complete your master's and doctoral degrees in art, of course, your PhD research into Cape Town-born painter Jan Isajuta. Yes, Jan Juta, yes. I suppose I've always been interested in art. I, I did it at school, but only when I was at university did I become more interested in art history. Yes, as you mentioned, I, I studied in the UK and I suppose ironically I studied South African art whilst <laughs> in Britain. But yes, I suppose I've always been drawn to more detailed research and of course doing masters and, and PhD research allows you to really drill down and focus on the minutiae of art making in some instances. My personal interests tend to be around historical contexts too. Yes, I love the formalist approach to looking at pictures, but I particularly like the context in which works are produced. Yeah. And just delve more into why you like that, the, the, the minutiae that, you, that you've just touched on, or, or the historical context, because if, if one has studied, let's say, English literature, for instance, and you talk semiotics and you talk signals and communication and understanding, there is obviously always what the artist or what the initial text might mean as put together or as created by the artist. And of course, the understanding of it or the appreciation of it is then completed in many ways by the viewer or the reader. Yeah, yeah. And so much of that happens or is enabled by the lack thereof or the enhanced understanding of, as you say, context by the reader. But what, what do you think it brings to you? to your well, own understanding. Of course, there, there, there's so many ways to approach looking at art. And if you, over the last few decades, they've, or have emerged some sort of newfangled ways of, of looking at work. Sometimes I would maybe argue overly complicated ways of looking at artworks. I am very definitely a traditional art historian. I, I like to know the how and the why and the where when, when, when it comes to to picture making. To me, always, those are basic factual questions that always need to be asked when looking at artworks, and in many cases, questions that are relatively easy to answer. Yeah. But when it comes to understanding and appreciating an artwork, yeah, to me, that context is absolutely vital. Take an example, the sculptures of Anton van Vaux, yeah. one of our great early sculptors, certainly in the Western tradition. You know, if you were to look at his small scale works, his desk scale works now with their incredible detail, if you didn't know much about where they came from or, or, or who Anton van Vaux was, I don't think you'd get nearly as much appreciation from looking at the works. Anton van Vaux was trained in, in, in Holland, but he comes to Pretoria in 1890. And now think about that for a moment. Think about what Johannesburg looked like in 1890. There were a few sort of tin shacks on the mines. It had only been established in 1886. Pretoria wasn't too much further advanced. So mm. for a man with a sort of deep-rooted traditional European training to arrive in that context and then go on to produce these remarkable sculptures is what is to me so incredibly exciting. He was seeing subjects for the first time. He was amazed at what was around him, enormously inspired. And he was producing works that had 
certainly never been seen in that context before. I love some of the practical elements around that kind of historical context. He was an artist who was used to casting in bronze or in stucco, working on large architectural scale. And when he was trying to produce small-scale monuments in bronze, he realized very quickly there was simply no artistic foundries in this country (laughs) that could cast bronze to the kind of standard he was used to or the kind of standard he expected. So that practical scenario of having to find a foundry to produce his work, which happened to be in Italy, the the best foundries were in Italy at the time, that's what makes his work so very special. Every single one of the works of his that we see, certainly from, from the earlier period, have gone through this remarkable physical journey of being carved and molded in studios in Pretoria or in Johannesburg, cast in the foundries of Rome and then shipped back to Pretoria and then put on a train and sent around the country. This is all happening before Union in 1910. That kind of context is what really gets me excited. Yeah. No, fascinating stuff. And of course, in this instance, you you might even describe Van Vaux as, I guess, a monument of patience, if nothing else, if not only passion for his art and, and his work and his craft. Yeah, that really is fascinating. And what I appreciate about the context, it also helps establish these connections between a listener right now, one that's much more sympathetic with the artist themselves and suddenly might bring down any walls or any sort of foreboding about the fact that I need to know more before I can step into these waters, which uh, I'm sure is a sort of attitude that you encounter far too often. Yes, I suppose so. If you talk about wanting to know more or or, or stepping into this world, it can be enormously intimidating. It's one of the things, one of the myths we are continuously trying to debunk at at Strauss and Company is that getting into art shouldn't be intimidating in any way. You can get out from pictures, or you can get a huge amount out of pictures, no matter your background. You don't need an art history degree. You don't need to have been brought up in a a collecting family. Any interest you show in the work will ultimately be rewarding. I suppose so many things, the more you learn, the richer the experience. And I have to say, in a South African art context, the content is not only enormously rich, but it is impossible to get to the bottom of. There's just so many wonderful stories in the South African art world across 150 odd years. And it's a world you can very easily get lost in. Yeah. Just reading your bio and seeing a reference towards your nous as an auctioneer, we'll get into the art of the auction very shortly. But of course, as you mentioned, Strauss & Co., you are part of an ongoing initiative to champion at auction neglected artists or stylistic movements from the 20th century. And as you say, there's just such a wealth of content and artists to pluck from or to pick from. How to make that decision of who to focus on now and, of course, how to profile them? What goes into making that decision? Because there there are many artists that have gone either largely unknown or underappreciated. Yes, that that list of neglected artists, particularly in South Africa, is endless. It's 
it's a problem we are always trying to to address and there've been a number of reasons why artists have been ne- neglected in our particular context you can imagine a huge number of black artists have been entirely sure. overlooked over the last century probably the most pertinent example at the moment is someone like Moses Cladi mm-hmm. Moses Cladi was a a little trained artist who started his career as a traditional landscape painter in the late 1920s. Mm-hmm. He came to Johannesburg. He started producing these small-scale works uh, of the landscapes on the fringes of Johannesburg. And he was the first black artist to be exhibited at the South African National Gallery in 1931. Sure. He produced a very small body of work. He should be a household name in this country, yet hardly anybody knows of him. And that's because because uh, of the horrendous discrimination in the 40s and 50s, he essentially didn't get the recognition he deserved. Because of the Native Resettlement Act in the 1950s, he was moved from his small holding in Kensington B in Randburg, and he died heartbroken, really, in Soweto by 1959, having not painted a single thing since his forced mm. removal. Thankfully, uh, a small number of his works have survived. Uh, we've been lucky enough to handle uh, a, a few of them over the years. Thankfully, there's enormous interest in his work now. There was a, a countrywide retrospective exhibition that, that traveled around the country between 2015 and 2016, I think. And there was a book to supplement that that show. And, and thankfully, an artist like Moses Cladi is getting a little bit of the recognition now that he yeah. deserves, uh, albeit posthumously. And he's just one of hundreds of artists who were terribly impacted not only by the socio-political situation in South Africa. Moses Clyde, as a black man, was unable to visit the National Gallery or the Johannesburg Mm. Art Gallery. He had to be he had to be snuck in there at, at night after the museum had closed by a few close friends in order to see paintings by the great sort of turn-of-the-century French and, and British Impressionists and post-Impressionists. That was the only way he, he could come face-to-face with those kind of mm. artworks. But we were also impacted dramatically by the cultural boycott, really, from the 60s onwards. You need to bear in mind that our incredible mid-century artists, of which, again, the list is endless, never had an international mm. platform. And that's because South African artists practically weren't allowed to exhibit around the world. They, they, they weren't able to visit the major biennales in, in Venice or in Sao Paulo, really from the late 1960s onwards. And internationally, there's this massive black hole when it comes to work by Southern African artists presented on an international platform from that period. So all these factors are at play. Thankfully, like so many economies in South Africa, the art economy developed in, in, in isolation mm-hmm. and artists were able to build their careers locally. Collectors were able to emerge locally and, and we are still benefiting from that uh, strong foundation. But one of the things we are always desperately trying to do is to redress those historical issues and make sure our fantastic modernist artists get a bit of a look in on the international scene. It's really um, fascinating and moving how the the political, obviously, 
impacts the personal so deeply. And we can look back on history and talk superficially about movements and various epochs. But at the heart of it all is an individual who wants to be recognized for that talent. And as you say, then spends the rest of their life dealing or battling with the heartbreak of not even being able to be loved back by the thing that he loves so much, which is art and the art world and his contemporaries. So we can never separate the two. And as you say, context is so incredibly important. Yeah, Yeah. it really is vital. Yeah, absolutely. So many of our, particularly our our black modernists who went into self-imposed exile Ernst Mangoba, for instance, uh, take someone like Gerard Sokoto. Gerard Sokoto, who was actually well-fated during his early career in South Africa in the late 1930s and the 1940s. You know, he goes into self-imposed exile in 1947. Uh, he gets to Paris that year. And although he dies in, what, he dies in 1993, between 1947 and his death, he never set foot in South Africa again. And that is so enormously sad. And I think if you look at his work uh, over his career, the work he produced in exile has a real spirit of nostalgia. He's painting his people, but he's not seeing his people. So it very much impacts the tone uh, of his work. Dumili Feni, another sort of firebrand artist from the 50s and 60s, he goes into exile what, in 1968. He gets to London in 1968. And then by the late 1970s is in New York. So many fantastic artists were denied a, a local career and never got the, the, the credits they deserved. After the break, we continue our conversation. When it comes to fuss-free flying, Lyft is South Africa's most flexible airline. With up to 25 daily flights, three major destinations, fee-free changes and cancellations, as well as Lyft Premium, the business class-inspired offering, Lyft caters to all travellers, even those with small dogs. Their dog-friendly flights mean you can fly with your small dog in the cabin. Plus, you can look forward to free coffee and snacks on every flight. Experience Lyft for yourself. Visit lift.co.za to book your seat. You spoke about the cultural boycott. Uh, what, what kind of ecosystem uh, was the local South African market then forced to establish uh, in, in the absence of this global stage? What, what are the things that, I guess you might say, ultimately end up holding it in good yeah, stead, yeah. if there are such? Yeah, I suppose the country's been enormously lucky in that we've had a, always had a very strong gallery system. If you think of going back a hundred years to the Peter Venning or the Everard Reed Gallery, all the way through to our incredible contemporary galleries working today and very much giving a name globally to, to our South African artists. Yes, we've always benefited from that strong backbone of gallerists. And yes, many of the gallerists have been South African. We've also had a huge number of, of American and European gallerists coming to South Africa, being inspired by, by, by local art production and establishing their galleries. There have been some sweet spots historically. I think in the late 1950s and 19. 19- 1960s in particular, in, in, in on the high felt, there was a group of quite remarkable gallerists pulling like-minded artists together and developing 
appreciation from the public. And you also need to bear in mind that generally, certainly in the first part of the of the 20th century in South Africa, tastes have been very conservative, quite Victorian really up until after the Second World War. And we've had a, a number of gallerists shake things up locally from the 1950s onwards, and they laid the foundation for a more avant-garde progressive, not only style of art making, but art appreciation. It, it takes time for collectors and gallery goers and art buyers to maybe come round to, to a change of taste, a change of spirit, a change of tone. And we've had a, a number of vitally important gallerists do that in this country in the mid 20th century. If you talk about how how the market was established going back mid-century, the market was really driven by what we would maybe describe as connoisseurs, collectors that were just moved by artworks and collected artworks really because they loved them um, or they appreciated what the artist was doing. Um, They weren't necessarily buying for investment. When the first auction houses were established in the country, that's still very simplistic. They were auction houses going back to the late 19th century, Lazards, for instance. But the more well-known auction names like Sotheby's and Stefan Veltz and Company really started in the 1970s. And they were still serving a a, a body of collectors that, that we would again describe as connoisseurs. That changed a little bit in the 80s, where the market was driven actually really by corporates, by corporate collecting. You know, at that time, major uh, national corporates were building up major collections. Think of some of the big banks, for instance. But more recently, the last generation, I would maybe argue that that much of the market uh, is driven by investment. The idea that that, that buying art is, is certainly a legitimate and exciting asset class, and more and more South Africans are buying South African art uh, as an investment. Uh, and frankly, more and more international investors are, are looking at the South African art market too. Yeah. Alistair, just talk to me about the state of the secondary art market in South Africa. And of course, I ask this knowing that it's a really broad question. (laughs) But one reads one reads articles talking about record breaking sales that have recently been made, for instance, such as going gone for millions. Right. Which was a headline in the Mail and Guardian a while ago, talking about the record breaking 22 million rand sale of Irma Stern's children reading the Quran. But in, in terms of a market large. What does the South African secondary market look like? And you might describe it to us in rand value or dollar value and its yeah. contribution towards perhaps the GDP, that kind of thing. But from your perspective as well as an art historian, is it looking good? Yes. And the short answer is we have a, an amazingly robust local secondary art market. A quick distinction, we talk about the secondary art market as opposed to the primary art market. The primary art market being galleries working directly with artists and putting on shows and selling to the public. Whereas the secondary yes. art market is the space of the auction houses where people are essentially reselling their work, ha- having owned it for years, decades, centuries. That's the space we're in. It's a very important barometer of the health of the broader art ecosystem because it is entirely transparent. When we put on auctions or we are selling a particular work, we give market-related auction estimates. But ultimately, the market and the bidding decides the value of that particular work. It is 
the most transparent way of buying and selling art. And therefore, it, it gives a, yeah. a really good indication of how things are doing. Yes, as I said, our market is very robust. Historically, having developed in, in relative isolation, the foundations are, are very deep and we have a good sort of tradition of collecting. If you look over the last few years, like every single economy and industry, COVID had an enormous impact in our world. I'll be honest, the, what, the first year of COVID was one of the best years we've ever had at Strauss and Company, ironically. We had huge interest in the works sure. coming to market and there was a, an explosion in the digitization of, of the auction world. And I suppose that democratized the secondary market because in the the worst months of lockdown when all auction houses were online. Absolutely. So whether you were sitting you know, in Tokyo or in Johannesburg or, where, or in Los Angeles, the interaction with an auctioneer or, or an auction house was entirely on your screen. So during that period, we had enormous growth. We had collectors from all around the world scrutinizing our sales, presumably because they had a lot more time than normal. Mm -hmm. And that, that in some ways gave the market a, a fantastic shot in the arm. When you talk about numbers, I can really only talk about Strauss and company, but we would, <laughs> yeah. we would turn over north of 300 million rand yeah. every year in, in art sales, which yes, against the, the major international market is a drop in the ocean. But the interest, particularly in contemporary African art, I think means that those numbers will very definitely continue to rise. You talk about headline grabbing artworks, mm. and yes, we love them. That, that fantastic children reading the Quran that we sold in our Cape Town sale room earlier this year for yeah. Yeah. Uh, 22 million rand uh, is absolutely fantastic, not only for the profile of the artist, but the profile <laughs> of the South African art market. What we don't talk about too much, which is certainly one of my passions, is the lower value special artworks that we sell on a week to week basis. The lower value artworks that don't always generate headlines. We sell thousands of works every year across online and, and virtual live sales that are back to back. And the interest in the lower value works is really, to me, what shows how healthy our local art market is. Not everybody can step into the market and drop a million rand on a fantastic Prella from the 1950s, people need to be able to start somewhere. Yes. And we sell works from 500 Rand, 2000 Rand, 5000 Rand upwards. And these are works that often have greater historical import and, in my mind, sometimes greater technical quality than some of the much more valuable works that, that, that tend to make the headlines. And to me, that's where the real richness mm -hmm. in our market lies. Mm -hmm. As a new collector, young collector, if you start looking at the kind of works coming on auction all the time under 10,000 Rand, you can be endlessly rewarded by the options, the quality uh, and the value for yeah. money. That's really lovely to know because when one looks at uh, a marquee name like Strauss & Co, you don't figure that I can step into an auction and perhaps find something for a thousand rand, right? Once again, perception versus reality. To that end, actually, could you talk us through a, a sort of selection of some of your own uh, def defining uh, artists or artworks that you've uh, worked with over the years and perhaps new discoveries that 
that you've recently come upon? I know it's all, it, it might be like asking someone to choose between their children, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Phew. One of the more memorable pictures we sold was a, a frankly spectacular painting by Pirniev, a work called Farm Yonkrusuk with Twin Peaks Beyond. It's a scene in Stellenbosch painted in 1928. That's the world record for Pirniev. It made north of 20 million rand. And that's going back to what, I think, 2017. But that was particularly special for me because I was very much involved uh, in terms of collecting it and, and, and consigning it. I'll never forget on the it must have been a, it was a Friday morning. I received a tiny little image on my mm-hmm. phone of this painting. And the gentleman said, I've got this painting. Could I please get a value for it? Jeez. And I asked him the size and he came back and said, it's 76 by 100 centimeters, uh-huh. which is a ginormous <laughs> work by PNF. And I just assumed he was measuring the frame yeah. or who had got it wrong. And I said, are, are you sure you've got the dimensions right? And he said, yes, absolutely. Now, a Pirniev at that scale is incredibly rare. The fact that this work had such knockout power in terms of its design and, and decorative elements and, and color scheme made it even more exciting. And I, of course, said, listen, I'll come right now and have a look at it. And he said, you're more than welcome, but I, I'm in Nelspreit. Yeah. I couldn't quite leave then, but I left that Monday morning probably about three o'clock in the morning and I got to him just before breakfast in Nalspreit and showed me a whole lot of works in his downstairs rooms, mainly 19th century bronzes, things that I personally had very little interest in, sort of European works produced under license or very old German furniture of which I know little uh, little about. (laughs) And after about an hour and a half, he said, should we go up and look at the Pioneer? And I said, yes, I wouldn't mind. (laughs) I love the patience that you displayed. (laughs) Um, So we we went upstairs and into one of the bedrooms and he gets out on the floor and he pulls out this enormous work from under the bed, which was wrapped in dog blankets, those gray dog blankets. And he threw the blankets off like a matador and he revealed the most spectacular peony of painting I'd ever seen. A large scale work in a period frame. And I was gobsmacked. I started looking for the telltale signs that would maybe undermine what I was seeing. Was it a fake? Was it a reproduction? Mm -hmm. Is it an oleograph? Is it something that's been reproduced at greater scale? And of course, every check I made checked out perfectly. It it was in fabulous condition. It it had all its punchy Mm -hmm. color. It had an incredible provenance. And we were able to agree on a price then and there. And he insisted i took it home with me. So I had to, I had this uh, really awkward moment where I had to put this enormous uh, and high value Pioneer in the back of my old (laughs) Isuzu Frontier Bucky (laughs) and drive it back to Johannesburg. And I had to ring our insurer and just let him know that I was carrying a high value picture. He just said to me, that's absolutely fine. But at no point during the entire journey could I be more than a meter away from the artwork. Yes. Which meant that in the late afternoon, having not eaten that day, I pretty much drove into the takeaway restaurant at Millie's on the N4 (laughs) to get a pie. But thankfully got the work back safely. It caused a real stir at the time. We exhibited it at the time at the Wanderers Club. And I remember people coming in 
just walking through the doors and saying, we've been told to come and look at a painting. That kind of crossover appeal is rare. And we just had day after day, people just in awe of this picture standing in front of it. And I have to say, it is a remarkable picture, not only in terms of its art historical significance, but its sheer wall power. And yes, that went on sale that year. It started off at estimates of six to eight million, which is very high at the time. I happened to be the only person who knew that the owner was in the room. And as the bidding went up, six, six and a half, seven, eight, nine, ten million rand, I was watching the <laughs> owner getting increasingly animated and, and sweating profusely. And when 11, 12, 13, 14, by the time it was at 15 million rand, he had his sort of wife in a headlock. Um, and yes, the, the work eventually fetched uh, over yeah. 20 million rand, which was a very special <laughs> evening for yeah. everybody. Oh, what a fantastic story. I feel a short film coming on called Pyrnif and uh, and the Pie. Yeah, may, maybe someone listening <laughs> yeah, yeah. to us can get onto that. But it's so interesting that you sit at this nexus where you're talking about provenance of the painting, but it's also a family history that comes into play. And how common is it that someone calls you about a painting that has just been collecting dust in someone's study or office? There was a, a, a rather unfortunate headline recently. I'm sure you saw it. Uh, of an elderly couple in the UK who sold what they thought was a worthless African mask for 157 mm-hmm. and it was then later on auctioned for 4.4 million. Anyway, there's a legal case going on there. Yeah. But aside from that kind of thing, how common is it to knock up against these kind of cases where the auction and the selling of a, a, a piece that has been in the family for a while really does change the lives of the sellers? Yeah, it does happen. I wish it happened more. I think these days with Google, anybody can just type an artist's name in and get a sense of whether or not there might be some value attached. But yes, we've had some fantastic stories. I remember doing a valuation day at the Tatham Art Gallery in Peter Maritzburg, and these two elderly women walked in with a picture covered by a old black bin bag. And I remember looking at them thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to see some horrible oleograph. And anyway, they they removed this bin bag to reveal this remarkable still life painting by Trechikov, which had been acquired in Peter Maritzburg while while Trechikov was driving between Durban and Johannesburg. uh, And whilst he had stopped at a local bun shop and it was bought then and there out the boot of his Cadillac and it was hanging in a tea room for decades. And it had accrued the horrendous uh, layer of grease and uh, and smoke. Uh, it was blackened entirely. But yes, once it was cleaned up, it it, it, it generated huge auction at interest, uh, a sorry, huge interest at auction. And these two lovely elderly ladies who thought they were just sitting on a decorative artwork, which we at the time valued at four hundred to six hundred thousand rand, much to their delight, then received a payout of of close to one point seven million rand uh, after it, it sold on auction. We had another fantastic story where we received an image of a a work by Alexis Preller, a lost intaglio from nineteen sixty nine. Uh, it, it was an image sent to us from the executive of a, an estate in in New York City. Um, and we recognized it immediately as this long lost high career, high point work by Preller. And the 
local auction house in New York had valued that particular work at $350. After we repatriated the work, we sold it for about 6.8 million rand. So yes, there are occasions like that where things are erroneously catalogued, where people are sitting on things that they think have little worth that end up of or fetching great prices. I have to say the corollary of that is, is often people think they're sitting on an absolute fortune and in fact, work isn't worth very much at all. That kind of disappointment is something we, we deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis and it's sometimes quite a challenge to, to manage people's expectations. We continue our conversation after the short break. Latitudes Online is the world's leading online marketplace for art from Africa. Discover and buy artworks from over 1,700 artists and enjoy editorial from leading voices on the continent. When you buy from Latitudes Online, you have peace of mind that your artwork will be safely delivered to you in perfect condition. Visit latitudes.online to discover and buy art from Africa and sign up for our weekly newsletter. The art of the auction. Could you just put us through that process? I was looking at an online walkabout that you did in 2021 before the actual auction. But it seems as though there's a lot of work involved beyond actually stepping up to the dyers and shouting out numbers and bids like a horse race commentator. What informs your process? Yeah, it certainly requires quite a bit of patience. We're very much in in the long game. We sometimes see works and value works that might only come to market five or 10 years or 15 years down Mm -hmm. the line. But in terms of the whole process, I suppose it starts off by valuing artworks. The values we give are related to recent auction precedents. So it's quite an objective way of of valuing works. And once a, a work is consigned, we will photograph it, we will catalog it, we will do all the research around it, we will try and flesh out its provenance, where has the work yeah. been, who owned it, that that of course feeds into the authenticity of the work. We then spend a lot of time trying to curate our auctions as best we can. Of course, there are occasions where whatever works are, are coming into the market go into a, a broad sale of, of modern and contemporary art. But we also try and focus on themes. If we realize we've got a, a bit of a theme emerging from the works that have come in, we will focus mm-hmm. on that. We will try and contextualize works together, relate works in an interesting way. And that's part of the way we market sales and market artworks. We also then exhibit all the works together. I always love that moment where we literally hang all the works coming up for sale in one room together. Yeah. It's a little silly historic moment knowing that all those works will never be in the same room again. They've come from all over the country, all over the world. They all have these amazing, often very personal stories, family traditions, and they're all in the room together, exhibited at one point showing this phenomenal cross-section of South African art in most cases. And then come auction night, hopefully they all sell and, and go off to their new owners, whether it's in South Africa or, or abroad. And that process is amazing. It's very fulfilling. It's hugely exciting. And in terms of our big flagship auctions, that 
kind of lead time is usually about six yeah. months from the beginning when we start collecting works to uh, consigning them, uh, fleshing out themes, doing the research, um, doing the local and international marketing, and then actually bringing them to auction. Um, yes, a- about a six-month yeah. process. Um, but we have auctions overlapping all the time. We'll have multiple auctions every single month, depending on what's coming to yeah. market. Something that I want to quickly revisit, the question of South African modernists who you think are worth a read uh, about, or in fact, if one has the opportunity to see their works being exhibited anywhere, who should people try to check out and get acquainted with? Yeah, that certainly is a would be an endless list. <laughs> I suppose may, may, maybe topically, um, I think the sculptures of Sidney Kumalo and Ezram Lachai mm. are, are remarkable. These are artists that started their careers in the 1950s and who really peaked from about 1960, early 1960s to the early 1970s. The work they produced over that decade is world-class. I, I honestly believe mm-hmm. it. Uh, it. It has a, a very interesting, broader context uh, and provenance in that these artists were shaped by a very important gallerist called Egon Gunther, as well as fantastic artists working on the high felt like Cecil Scottness and Giuseppe Catano and Eduardo Villa. And there was this perfect moment where a number of like-minded artists, black and white, produced an incredible body of work. And Ezram Lachai and Sidney Kumalo were relatively well-known uh, during their careers, yeah. but they are now being appreciated far more. We have a number of very serious collectors looking at their work locally, but what's a, a very interesting sign t- to me at least is that we have major international institutions looking at their work now, particularly American institutions, European institutions, realizing that the work being produced by Kumala and Lachai in the 60s and early 1970s is very special. We were lucky enough to stage a major retrospective, a non-selling exhibition at at our Johannesburg sale room in in June and July. Some of your listeners might have seen it. It it was amazing where we had a an enormous number of bronzes by Ezram Lachai and Sidney Kumalo. And it coincided with the publication of a major catalogue resume on the artists. Only the second catalogue resume really in the South African art history canon, which is rather mm. sad. But I think Kumalo and Lachai are very special. The work is enormously dynamic and powerful, tactile. It has fabulous forms, very emotive, dramatic. We were lucky enough last week to to take 11 of their sculptures to London to exhibit at the African Centre there. And yes, I would say out of an enormously long list, <laughs> those two, Lachai and Kumalo, are maybe two modernists that, that some of your listeners might have a close look yeah. at. The reception in London, just describe that to us, please. Fabulous. Those two artists happen to have a bit of a connection to London, incidentally, too. In 1965, a man called Eric Esterick, who was a New Yorker, but but owned a gallery called the Grosvenor Gallery, which had spaces in New York and in London at the time. Yeah. He took an interest in what was being produced by, by, by Sydney and Israel. And he actually comes to Johannesburg three times in 1965 and 1966 to cut a mm. deal 
with the artist and the artists and their, and their gallerist to show works at the Grosvenor Gallery in, in, in New York and in London. So the work has a bit of a link to London. And I think the people that came to, to view the works, I'd like to think were, were blown away. <laughs> we spoke about their local context, how the work was produced in terms of what was going on in terms of the socio political moment in South Africa in the 1950s and 1960s. But also we try to give it a, a, a global context. Yes. These are artists that were looking very closely at great British modernists, for instance, like Lynn Chadwick and Kenneth Armitage and, and Henry Moore, um, but also going further back to the turn of the century and the great European modernists like uh, Pablo Picasso. There's one particular work by Ezra Lachai. It's called Small Head. It was cast in 1967. It's very rare. It's built up with these fantastic geometric planes. Yeah. It's very angular. And the way you look at it, the angle at which you look at it from changes the, the face all the time. And, and the shadows thrown by these fabulous uh, ridges and angles make the work very dramatic. And I was saying to our audiences, if, if that was erroneously catalogued and put in the Metropolitan Museum as part of a Picasso bronze mm -hmm. show, I don't think anybody would bat an <laughs> island. That, that's the kind of quality of work produced at the time by yeah. Ezra and Sydney. Oh, absolutely beautiful. Alistair, I'm going to ask you one final one, a question that I've stolen from the Queen of Talk, Oprah Winfrey, and that's to ask oh, yeah. you what you know for sure. What do you know for sure? about South African modernist art? What do I know for sure? I know for sure that it has been scandalously underappreciated and undervalued globally. I think the quality produced by our is very definitely world-class. It is wide-ranging stylistically. It comes from one of the most incredible socio-political contexts you can imagine, that sort of hotbed of politics and creativity and violence and isolation produced a body of work that really should get recognition. I would also say from a collecting and buying perspective, it is very accessible. We've sold very special works by the likes of Erich Meyer when he was a POW on St. Helena during the Anglo-Boer mm -hmm. War for 1,000 rand, 2,000 rand. We've we've sold Venning etchings from his Johannesburg, great Johannesburg series from 1911, 1912 at a similar value. We've then obviously sold Sukotos and Stearns and Prellers and Pembers, so north of 10 million rand a shot. So there's enormous opportunity for local collectors as well as international collectors. And I don't just mean when it comes to buying artworks, but also just in terms of learning and understanding how and where and why they were produced. Yes. yes, we're very much an auction house, but we put a huge emphasis on education. Very sadly, our state parastatal museums and institutions don't quite have the means to stage major shows. And I think the public, the local public is starved of, of exhibitions. And whilst we try and stage shows, whether they're selling or non-selling exhibitions as often as we can, broadly, there isn't enough access to our fabulous modernists. And yes, there are some very important museums, particularly some private museums emerging. Think of CAF, think of 
the Norval Foundation, for instance, in Cape Town, the Javits Center in Pretoria, doing amazing work, giving insight into this incredible creativity running across a century in South Africa. It's a wonderfully exciting space. It's free and available. We have a major exhibition week coming up in November. Our sale rooms are hanging in Johannesburg as well as in Cape Town. They are open to the public, free of charge. Anybody can walk in there and see a Pirniev, see a Stern, see an Alexis Prela, see a Sidney Kumalo, Ezram Lachai, Eduardo Villa, Cecil Scottness, as well as examples by our fantastic contemporary artists. I do have to say, while my personal interest is very much historical or or modernist. Mm -hmm. The work coming out of South Africa by our contemporary artists is staggering. Mm -hmm. It it is getting world recognition. We have incredible galleries showcasing our artists around the world. And I think that'll stand stand our market in in, in good stead. Alistair, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you today. It really was an honor. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Thanks for listening to the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Rafil Wempakanyane, for the Rare Event Foundry. Spike Ballantyne is on technical for DBO Media and a big thank you to the Latitudes team.